everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger. Today, we're going to talk about belongingness. Yeah, you don't think about it all the time, but belongingness, our need to belong, is the third most fundamental human need as ranked by, not by BuzzFeed, no, by, by Maslow on his hierarchy of human needs. Just above safety and physiological needs is our need to belong. Once you got some food, some water, and some shelter, you need a tribe to hang with. And it's really important to understanding the way the world works, the way our minds work. My guest this week is Jeffrey L. Cohen. Jeff is the author of a book called Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. He's also a professor of psychology and organizational studies at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. So you know he's a very smart guy. In this conversation, we talk about what it means to belong to a place, an organization, a family, or a movement, how belongingness and identity are intermixed, and what implications that has for how we discuss politics and other beliefs with people of differing points of view. We talk about why our need to belong might push people to more extreme political views and the way belongingness affects our performance at school and work. We also talk about what groups you'd rather not belong to because while belongingness is important, you don't want to join uh, just any old group, now do you? I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, folks. This is Jeff Cohen. Jeff Cohen, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be here. Jeff, Maslow ranked belongingness as the third most basic human need. What does he mean by belongingness? Well, belonging is the sense that we're part of a group to which we matter and can contribute and to which we feel accepted and included. So it's kind of a two-way street belonging. It's a sense that we're accepted, but also the sense that we we also matter to the group and the group can be anything, right? It could be our family, it could be our friends, it could be our community. We as human beings are a social species. So we need some port on the shore, some place where we feel that sense of belonging. And if we don't, we don't really thrive. And a lot of research converges on that lesson. How big a deal is it to not belong? It is a very big deal not to belong. At the same time, a sense of belonging is is situational. We might feel it in, in one context, like at work, we might feel like we're accepted. But in another context, for instance, out and about in our community, may, we may not feel a sense of belonging. The upshot, I think, is that we need some port on the shore, some place where we do feel that sense of belonging. And if we don't, we're sort of unmoored and adrift and our health, our well-being suffers. So I think that uh, not having a sense of belonging for us as a, as a social species is a really detriment, really, really detrimental thing. And it's one of the things that uh, it's, 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 it's what being human is all about, is about connecting with, with other people. And, and even kind of momentarily, you know, we've all experienced this. You walk into some new environment, some new situation, some new, new workplace, new, it's a transition. And for a moment or maybe longer, we have that sense like, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if people accept me. Maybe we, <laughs> we're wondering if there's some stereotype out there about, you know, academics, whether they should be in this situation or not. And uh, it crosses our minds as to whether or not we, we are fully accepted in this situation. And that, that's something that my colleague Greg Walton and I called belonging uncertainty. And, and it's something that, yeah, we're just really attuned to. I, I, I have noticed just even... You know, I have a pretty solid sense of belonging in academia, but I've noticed that, you know, in, in certain situations, for instance, playing sports, all of a sudden it's 
it's uh, that that belonging uncertainty kicks in and, and you really do feel it. I think as human beings, we're just exquisitely attuned to that, that sinking feeling that, oh, maybe I'm not wanted here. Maybe people are talking about me. Maybe I'm seen as a joke. And it can really be distracting and preoccupying you know, for all of us. I think we've all been there. We all kind of know what that's like. Can you tell me about a time in your life where you felt particularly uncomfortable in, in a in a situation, not just like at a party, oh, yeah. but like in, oh, a, in yeah, a situation yeah. where you were like, oh, I'm not sure I made the right decision or these aren't my people or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of, I feel that quite a lot. I mean, as a kid, I think <laughs> I, I don't know. The psychology of being an outsider is quite familiar to me. I, you know, I, I think as a teenager and as a kid, I, I often did feel like I was somewhat of a loner and an outcast. So I, I did feel it then. But let me focus on, on one that was really influ influential to me. When I left graduate school and took up my first job as an assistant professor, I felt acute uncertainty about my sense of belonging. I, and it wasn't that I didn't think I could do it, though, that whether I could certainly became an uncertainty, but it was whether or not this was a place that where people accepted me and was a place where people regarded and, and respected me. And I was starting off as an assistant professor and I was surrounded by all these grand poobahs of social psychology and psychology who were highly esteemed in their field. And I wasn't really in that environment. I felt very, very uncertain about whether this was a place for me, whether I could make it and whether or not I was regarded as one of them. And I think that's a very kind of natural experience to have. I would notice this kind of influence some of the research that Greg Walton and I later did. I would notice I would come home from work after that first year teaching and, and uh, I would come home uh, and just feel drained, feel drained. There were two effects. I felt psychologically drained. And when I look back on the day, asking myself, what had I done? be like, well, not a whole lot. Yet, nevertheless, I felt sapped. So that was like one aspect of, that's one aspect of belonging, feeling uncertain about our, our belongings. It, it, it takes up mental and emotional space that could otherwise go to like more productive and constructive causes. The second thing I've noticed, noticed was that uh, uh, little things started to loom large. And I think this is kind of one symptom of belonging uncertainty. I remember my chair patted me on the back one afternoon and asked me, how is your class going? And immediately crossed my mind, maybe he heard something about my class. <laughs> and that is kind of what belonging uncertainty does. It kind of creates this tunnel vision, a vigilance, because we're kind of on the defensive. Uh, and, and that can be pretty costly. That can be pretty costly. So to what degree, now I was thinking about this, that you as a pre-tenure professor, you know, tenure is this thing. You are either tenured or you are not. And, and that's a pretty big third party verification of your belongingness, right? Was there pressure there or was that just natural, um, not FOMO, but uh, imposter syndrome that you were feeling at the time? Oh, I, at the time, I think imposter syndrome goes hand in hand with belonging uncertainty because uh, there, there's a, there's a fine distinction, but I think important and imposter syndrome may be more about your perceptions of your ability, right? Like, mm -hmm. do, can I, can I actually do it? And belonging uncertainty isn't necessarily about that. I think a lot of people have belonging uncertainty without really feeling a low self-confidence. They, they believe they can do it, but nevertheless, they're in an environment. Maybe they think that their manager doesn't like them 
or mm. maybe they think that their advisor has a low opinion of them. Maybe someone said something that really felt like an affront or an ins or an insult. Maybe I'm coming in from a historically underrepresented group here, like, a, like a minority entering a predominantly white campus. I will often be in the state of mind of belonging and certainty in which I'm wondering about my social self. How am I seen in the eyes of others? And do other people accord me a full measure of respect and regard? And it's that social self that belonging is all about. I think in a lot of cases, we might be pretty self-confident, but feel like, man, this just is not a place where I'm feeling comfortable, where I feel like people are accepting me, where I feel like people see me. And if you don't feel seen and don't feel accepted, how likely are you to do your best work? Very, I think, pretty unlikely. I mean, it, it's uh, the the research converges on a, well, you know, at least when you don't feel seen or respected, it can be really hard to do your best work uh, for a number of different reasons. One, the one we talked about earlier, where in you might just be sort of preoccupied. If you're highly identified and you want to succeed, as I did as an assistant professor, you want to succeed that kind of preoccupation can be psychologically draining and all that that energy could go could have gone to your work to advancing some cause that you care about but instead it's sort of you're you're churning you're ruminating ruminating and rumination has this kind of effect where it kind of feeds off of itself another way in which it can go awry or another way in which belonging uncertainty can undermine uh, our ability to do our best work is by causing us to sort of choke under pressure. Uh, and I think the research on stereotype threat by Claude Steele, Josh Aronson, Steve Spencer, and, and others really kind of makes this point very well that when we are working in a situation where we feel we could be seen through the lens of a stereotype, rather than recognized for who we are, it is sufficiently preoccupying to undermine our performance. And in this classic work that Steele did with his colleagues, he would, for example, put African-American students into a situation where they experience stereotype threat, taking a really difficult standardized intellectual test. And the stereotypes about African-Americans, the stereotypes are all about the alleged limitation in their intellectual ability. And so when they're taking that intellectual test, they may understandably wonder about the possibility that if I do poorly, it will confirm the stereotype about me and my group in the eyes of others. And in certain situations, that can be a sufficient preoccupation to undermine even standardized test performance. Uh, the, the kind of key conditions are ones in which the, it's very hard and you need all your, your intellectual wits about you to do your best work. And you care, you care because you, we choke in those situations where we care about doing well. So I would kind of list those as, as, as sort of two key ways in which feeling we don't belong can undermine our ability to do our best work. It, it saps our mental energy, distracts us, and uh, it leads us to choke in these high-pressure situations where, where doing your best is, is really important. It can be a fork in the road. So I, I had my first sort of adult experience with belongingness when I left the working world at 42 years old without a plan. And it wasn't like I was in a terrible situation, but I just wasn't working. I wasn't out engaging with the world every day. And all of a sudden I had sort of this identity crisis about, well, if I don't know how to answer the question, what do you do? Who am I? 
What role does work play in in helping adults feel centered and secure? I mean, so much. I, I was reading a, a bit about your your reflections on your own career. I, I, I found it really fascinating and and really it kind of resonated a lot with me, this idea that, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way or I'd be curious, you know, you get a lot of belonging from giving yourself to purposes higher than yourself, calling, kind of following your calling. That's like an interesting word. It's almost like calling, not a career, not a lifestyle, but a calling as if something is kind of pulling you outside of your own ego. And that is such an important way in which we achieve a sense of belonging by connecting ourselves to purposes larger than ourselves. And purposes are often social purposes. We are kind of helping other people, supporting other people, entertaining other people, inspiring other people. We are at our best, the research really suggests, at our healthiest when we are giving ourselves, when the ego gives its energy to things outside of itself, to issues outside of itself. And so I do think work Work is really key, or can be very key, can be very key, work broadly defined to creating that sense of belonging, uh, because it, it helps us to feel that kind of sense of an infinite game, right? That kind of Carson idea, infinite game. I am, I, I'm part of some bigger mission here. I'm part of some bigger yeah. mission that will last forever. And that, that is a great way to feel belonging and feel connected to, I mean, as a professor, I feel that all the time. I'm, I'm just part of a long chain, a conversation that is, will go on forever. Yeah, well, I think if any, if nothing else, being of service to somebody else takes your mind off of yourself for a few moments. You don't yeah. have time to to ruminate, like you said earlier. And like I talked to your 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 professional colleague uh, Ethan Cross about a few months yeah. ago, right? Like we oh, don't yeah. have these conversations in our head going like, why isn't the world noticing me? Why am I not more successful? Why does Joe have a better car than I do? Because I'm out there and I'm active and I'm working. And it's like the same reason I want to keep my my son in swim lessons, because if he's tired, he's not sitting there, you know, sitting on the couch whining about something that isn't a terrible injustice in his life, right? And we yeah. all do that. And I'm as guilty as anybody. He's inherited my crazy brain. So I recognize it when he's doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the ego is a hard beast to please. It is never satisfied, it is never satisfied. I mean, for me, I mean, maybe if you're a Buddhist monk, I don't know, then the ego is kind of dissolved, I guess. Instead, we're, we're much happier. Our kind of well-being is, is much better, even at a biological level when we're committed to, to, to higher purposes. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I find this really interesting that it's really kind of hard to reassure myself on my own. I mean, I can do it, like, but if I'm having like a really bad day, right? Things go awry, as they do for, for all of us. It's really hard right. to talk, self-talk my way out of that. And I think Ethan's it work is. is kind of brilliant in, in, this, in this way. Uh, the kind of the inner chatter sometimes exacerbates our situation. But it's so easy for someone else to reassure me, to help me to narrate the adversity in a positive, saying, you know, this is a treasure. You learn from this mistake, learn from this failure. I believe in you. So we're really good at helping other people psychologically, I think. I don't know what you think of this, but this is kind of interesting, but kind of bad at helping ourselves. So I totally agree. Totally agree. We, you know, and we would say, if you said things that you say to yourself in the mirror to a stranger, you'd get punched in the face, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, and deservedly so, you know, it's like, ah, you fat piece of crap. I can't <laughs> believe you're so weak-willed. But you would only take that advice, you know, you're talking about your friend who can who can give you that that objective point of view, but you would only take it from somebody that you feel safe with, right? And so that yeah. comes back to belongingness. And what are the places where you feel safe? And how do we create those environments, whether it's home, church, work, 
um, political affiliations, which since it's election day, I want to get to that. But yeah, we're, we're going to wait for a minute before we go down that rabbit hole. Right. <laughs> so what are the conditions we need to feel safe where we would actually listen to somebody like that? You know, I, I don't think it's that difficult. I actually don't think it's that difficult. I have really been amazed. One of the the readers of my book put it really better than I did. Uh, they were like, you know, one of the implications here is that connection can be found in the most unlikely of places. It can be created in the most unlikely of places. I think a lot of the research that my lab has done, my colleagues have done, throws light on that that very point that little things, we can do all do little things to create connection, even in the smallest corners of social life. And it's actually not that hard. Our ability to do so is almost, I put this in, in the book, as, as like a superpower. It's like a superpower because we can create belonging, this sort of magical psychological state through the words we choose, through our actions. And I just think that that, that, that is, um, our ability to do this is, is, is one of the kind of big messages of a lot of the research that out, that's out there. Just to take one example, I, I love this work by Nick Epley's lab at University of Chicago, brilliant work where he shows just innumerable ways in which small encounters can create moments of connection and happiness. For instance, just uh, this is with Juliana Schroeder, uh, just randomly assigning people to talk with someone, have a little chit chat on the subway for 10 minutes. People believe that's going to make them unhappy, but it actually makes them happier because right. we like that. We like to connect. And they've shown this over and over uh, that we often don't create the connections that would make us happy, even in these very kind of everyday situations where we could. Uh, likewise, they find, for instance, that complimenting people, you know, we, we don't compliment people as much as we do. And, and they show in a lot of research that when people compliment a close friend, for instance, or a romantic partner, they uh, it 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 makes the other person happier than people predict. We get it wrong. We, we don't understand the power that we have to help other people to ha feel happy and in so doing, bolstering the connection we feel. And one more example, random acts of kindness that, you know, Eckley and his colleagues show in a, in a few other studies that uh, just doing a random act of kindness, like giving away a gift or they do these lab studies where, you know, I'm going to give my cupcake to another participant. It actually right. makes the other person much more happy than people predict. And one of the reasons is, is in this culture, we have like this norm of self-interest, a kind of individualism that makes us feel like, oh, it's just going to be awkward and uncool to kind of go out on a limb and do these things. People are going to think I'm weird. But uh, those things that Epley says, you know, don't matter nearly as much as, as we think. And what matters much more is the connections that these little gestures can create. Yeah, in sales, we'd always bring cupcakes or, you know, uh, some nice little, even not terribly expensive, but some nice little gesture that people can't help accepting and they can't help feeling a little bit more inclined to listen to you for 27 minutes. Totally. You know, totally. If, you, if you show up with a gift, right? I used to, I, I did some research as an undergraduate with uh, a professor named Alice Eisen, who had this amazing experimental intervention, which was simply a little bag of candy little baggie of candy with like Brock's colored candies in it and a ribbon mm -hmm. tied around. And, and the, the intervention was, you know, the, the experimenter just says, Paul, um, I, I would really like you to have this, this little bag of candy just as a gesture of, of, of my appreciation. Thank you for coming in today. But and you messed it up, but you, but you messed it up, didn't you? I, I Tell did. the anecdote. <laughs> 
Okay. The, the, the anecdote is after I was working in this lab, I, I'm such a, you know, in some ways I, I am really clueless, really clueless. So I, 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 I kind of really, so in some ways you can really get these things wrong. So I, I wanted to get to know someone as a student, you know, I was a student, she was a student and I knocked on her door and I said, Oh, here's a little bag of candy. I, I'd just like to give to you because, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. And her face lit up with a bright smile and she was clearly, clearly moved. And then I, then I blew it. And I said, you know, this, this gift has been shown in randomized control studies to be an effective mood induction, an induction of positive affect. And you could see the kind of positive mood drain from her face. (laughs) And then she closed the door and that was that. <laughs> because she thought you were a manipulative creep, right? Yep. Yep. Which I highlights a really important lesson. Highlights an important lesson that um, all of these activities, these these um, so-called uh, these, these practices that we do, they have, they have to be authentic. You know, they're, right, they're, right. they're kind of like uh, protocols for politeness. You know, and I've I think we're all kind of learning here to kind of how to how to kind of express ourselves in ways that create connection and that, that, that are authentic. And so I think one of the kind of key issues that is very important is that we feel that connection when we feel like we're being treated for who we are and for who this but authentic, is authentic, but authentically and authentically authentic, and authentic spontaneity. This is the person's true self coming through. Uh, and that that is really important for these small gestures. So I, I think sometimes when social psychologists talk about this research, they they don't emphasize that point. It's like, oh, here's like a little intervention, right? I'm going to give you a bag of candy, or I'm going to, you know, have you do this activity like talking about your most important values. Uh, another sort of psychological activity that's been shown to be beneficial. They don't understand, no, that what's really key isn't the kind of material intervention, but the psychological meaning it creates, which is someone cares. We are connecting. Someone is interested in me. Someone sees me. Uh, and that's really important. That's a really, it is about the psych- psychological meaning of these gestures, not the behavioral, the literal behavioral act that matters. All right, let's talk about aspirational belonging. Groucho Marx famously said something to the effect of, I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. What does that tell you about human nature? I wouldn't want to have, I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would have me as a member. We are always aspiring. I'd be curious what you think, but we are always aspiring for more status beyond what we already have. We want, we're like little elitists. And so we want to kind of belong to the tribe or group that will enhance our self-worth. And, and I think uh, what you're saying is almost a psychology of someone with low self-esteem too. I, you know, if someone accepts me, they must not be worthy or they, they must not be a true source of validation. They, they, that, that's not validating because as a person with low self-esteem, when I'm accepted, it kind of casts doubt on the other person's judgment. So it's, it's a little bit of the psychology of low self-esteem as well, I think. What do you well, think? One I think, it's a, one, I think it's a perfect joke because it really does capture our, our, our desire to increase our status through association. Um, but but it, it's leading me to the question of like, is it okay to not belong in every group? Like, would you rather be in a cult or be alone? 
what's what's healthier for us yeah well one of the one of the key things about the the need to belong is like it's a it's a fundamental need we have as as human beings but it can kind of channel us into some horrific directions or into some heroic ones so you know people will throw themselves into you know into the into into a, a, a barrage of bullets if they think it will protect the people they love at the same time uh, research suggests that when people feel as though they have no port on the shore, that they are lacking a sense of belonging or connection in their lives, they become vulnerable to the appeals of hate groups and extremist groups. Ari Kruglansky wrote a few awesome books on this topic, showing that and arguing that a lot of people who join extremists and hate groups don't do so because they initially subscribe to the ideology. Rather, they do so because the group is a place where that the, the organization is a place where they feel important. They feel like someone who matters. And I tell the story of CPL, so, uh, just a wonderful story of, of uh, a person who tur- really turned around. He, he joined the KKK. This is back in the, in the 70s and became a grand wizard when, for the KKK. And he was someone who had very few connections in his life. His family life was a mess. Economically, he was feeling left behind. But then these people from the KKK would stop by his work and just ask him questions, hang out with him, and he felt good. Then they invited him to an initiation ceremony. And as he describes it, when he looks back, he was like kneeling before the cross and everyone was applauding him. And he felt like someone, this little old person, someone who mattered. And so that need to belong can really be exploited by these extremist groups. Fortunately for him, he kind of had this amazing transformation experience by befriending a black activist, um, Ann Atwater at the time. And they worked together in common purpose to improve the schooling in in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And they worked together. And through that friendship, he actually turned around and in front of this huge ceremony, ripped up his KKK card. And it's just an amazing story how um, showing so many things that first, you know, people can be turned back from these, 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 these horrific paths. And second, a lot of times when people, not always, but a lot of times when people join these extremist organizations or do something terrible or behave objectionably, it's it's not necessarily because they lack character or lack values. It it's often a sign of their desire to connect with something beyond themselves, and and that need can really be distorted to evil ends. And and these organizations are really good at exploiting it, which is a big problem. Right. Well, along those lines, you know. Robert Putnam years ago wrote a book called Bowling Alone, which sort of lamented the decline in social institutions in the United States. What what can be done here? Where where can we find associations in the world if we don't have churches and bowling leagues and book clubs as as we used to? Do we all just go online and find, you know, subreddits to to dig down deep to try to find other lonely people out there? All <laughs> fairness to the to the legitimate people on Reddit, but that's that's where people seem to be going now, right? Yeah, I mean, the the research on social media isn't so favorable, at least for the moment, especially for young people. It seems to undercut belonging, undercut well-being, uh, partly because it's kind of inauthentic and performative, partly because it can kind of get so toxic, partly because there's so much opportunity for uh, upward social comparisons where you feel just, you know, everyone's presenting their best self. So you feel like you're the only one who's 
experiencing difficulty or adversity. And all those things combined can really um, make those kinds of online connections not so, not so vital, not so energizing, not so real. Uh, instead, what seems to be better is that, um, you know, the old Howard Beals philosophy, turn it off. And the research suggests that when people get off of Facebook, for instance, it's roughly equivalent to a third of the effect of going to therapy. So removing yourself from this environment turns out to be beneficial to well-being. And in some other research, it's been shown to kind of give people more time to invest in civic associations and clubs mm -hmm. and extracurricular activities, for instance, for young people that actually bring about that true source, that kind of authentic sense of belonging that is, is so psychologically and, and even physiologically beneficial to us. So joining, I think these little organizations are all around us. Volunteer organizations have been shown to be really effective for creating connection and improving well-being and health. That's one, that's, that's pretty simple. Uh, committing yourself, as we were talking about, to organizations that are involved in making the world a better place. That, 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 that's, these are uh, opportunities that are around many of us. Even simply spending more time with friends and family. Liz Dunn oh, and her lab have shown that just putting your phone away when you're having a meal with friends or family makes people much more present in the interaction and enjoy it much more. So I think there's like little things. There are so many forces that, that divide us, the rise of social media, the you know instit institutional biases and systems of exclusion that are out there in the world. And, and I fully believe we need to kind of push the ball forward in creating systemic change. But at the same time, I, I think that, they're, they're, that every day in very small, small places, we can, we can find ways to connect and find ways to give ourselves over to other people and other purposes. It's, it's, there are opportunities all around. Early in the book, you make a very interesting observation that seems somewhat counterintuitive. And, and you talk about a survey of law school students and the degree to which certain groups feel that as if they belong. And the two groups in this one particular law school that said they felt the least connection, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, so please correct my language, but the, the, the ones that felt the least belongingness there were black women and conservative white men, I yeah. believe. Yeah. That seems to be contradictory. What's going on there? Well, let me ask you, in what way does it seem contradictory? Well, I, I, yeah. it, well you've got diamet, you've got yeah. demographically contrasting groups, right? Not, yeah. so, so it's not as if one type of person necessarily feels, you know, as if it's, it's not as if there is a monopoly on belongingness by, by demographics in this situation in, this situation. in that school. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I use that example just to, to make the point that all of us, it, we're kind of in this moment in American culture that Pete Buttigieg calls a crisis of belonging, where very few people, very few groups feel confident in their belonging. And you have these sort of politically, seemingly diametrically opposed groups, both feeling equally alienated on campus for obviously different reasons, obviously different reasons. The discrimination, prejudice, institutional bias against Black people is, is a powerful force affecting their real opportunities to, to belong. So the kind of historical legacies of 
of racism and sexism, in this case for black women, are very, very, um, very influential, very influential in, in, in shaping their sense of belonging and their real opportunities to belong and connect. Meanwhile, for white conservative men, they feel on the, the predominantly liberal campus that they don't belong. And uh, in our interviews with, with some of them, they say, you know, I can't really express my opinions. I can't really say what I think. I can't really be my true self without, uh, without condemnation. And so they feel themselves like as though they don't belong either for, for completely different reasons. And I just use that as an example is how we're kind of in this, in this kind of point in history where very few of us feel tied or connected to, you know, feel that anchor anchorage, uh, that, that helps us to feel like we belong in, and many, and very few groups feel confident in their sense of, sense of, sense of belonging. We seem to be in this era of a crisis of belonging. So what do you do there? Because, you know, I've heard so many anecdotes and in, in, in today's world, you don't know what to believe and what not to believe, but you hear so many anecdotes about, okay, well, diversity training was brought in mm. to help people try to feel more as if they belong. And yet what happens is it ends up alienating half of the room, right? So how do you create diversity training that doesn't suck? Mm. <laughs> well, so diversity training that, I mean, in some ways, diversity training can be effective because it sets new new norms. It says, you know, our organization is committed to making diversity work, but that's often not enough. The, and the, the kinds of diversity practices that seem to work best create sort of coalitions of people working together to improve the climate in day-to-day -day encounters. And that includes just simply for instance, gender-inclusive policies. Uh, Tony Schmader, a social psychologist, and her colleagues have shown that simply the availability of, you know, kind of consistent availability of gender-inclusive social policies, like the ability to report harassment, the opportunities that are provided for family workplace balance, such as opportunities for childcare or support for childcare, uh, opportunities for parental leave, that these policies are highly predictive of women's feelings of inclusion and feeling that they're not stereotyped at work. So I, I feel as though one problem with diversity training, though it can set a powerful norm, is that it's it's kind of like a shot in the arm. It's like one thing, and then we expect magic. But really, the, the best sorts of practices are right. ones that sort of weave connection and inclusion into the day-to-day -day life lives of their workers uh, through gender-inclusive policies, through, um, there's this wonderful work by Jessie Smith in which she shows that uh, just creating these little pods of faculty, these, uh, this is in higher education, that work together to advance gender equity. They, you know, go from department to department in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math departments, and just talk to people and work with them to create sort of concrete plans for improving gender diversity and raising people's awareness of the issue so that they can draw their own conclusions rather than feeling strong-armed. Uh, th th this, this, this program has shown remarkable effects. It's actually at the school she implemented it. It led to complete gender parity in faculty hires uh, in, in the STEM, STEM disciplines. So there's a lot of like sort of, um, points of light, points of light in, uh, diversity at work.
Do you think if we called it belongingness instead of diversity, people would be more open to having the conversation? I well, I hope so. Belongingness doesn't yeah. threaten me, you know. Yeah, Bel- like I think everybody should feel like they belong, but diversity yeah. seems to exclude certain populations. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I it turns out that when you talk about multiculturalism, unfortunately, many whites and men feel excluded, and then they don't support it as much. In in uh, some studies that that's been shown, so. But would I want to work for a place where everybody felt like they could belong and contribute? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, from all right. walks of life. Now, what does that mean? How do we create? Right. Okay, well, that's harder. Yeah, that's harder. That's harder. <laughs> I thought I was just <laughs> filling out a survey, Jeff. And and that ultimately boils down to this, you know, what I, what we what I call situation crafting. It, it's not about so much changing people's hearts and minds or attitudes. It's about kind of creating day-to-day situations that provide opportunities for inclusion and connection. And is that about seeing the other person's humanity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's giving us an opportunity to 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 recognize the heart and soul behind that face. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was really taken by this. Uh, you know, I'm kind of I'm a little bit of an etymologist. I love studying the origins of words, like you know, before yeah. they were corrupted by the dark side. What did the word originally <laughs> mean? <laughs> Uh, and I and I have a few, you know, there's a few examples that stuck with me, but one is respect, respect, the word respect, right. which yeah. has uh, coinage both with young people and, you know, more, you know, my son uses it, but, and I use it as a middle-aged guy. What does that actually mean? And the etymology is to look again, respecting. I just love that. That means that we want to look closer to really understand the person and see their true self. And there are many strategies for doing this, but I think it boils down to that, looking closer, making the person feel seen. I tell one story of uh, a, a colleague of mine who I, who I interviewed about his experience in uh, high school. He got a, he's a black, a black man who got a scholarship to a, a, a private high school. <clears throat> and long story short, he was, he was kind of coasting. He was doing okay, but he really wasn't realizing his potential. Then one day, his social studies teacher called him over after class and said to him, you know, Muhammad, people are going to, because you're black, people are going to expect less of you, but not me, not me. I'm going to expect you to achieve the high standards that I set for you because I believe you can do it. And Muhammad said that that really just inspired him. And he did change course after that. And then when I asked him why, when I asked him why, I was just like, why? And and he said, because I felt seen. I felt like my whole self was seen by this person. And that's the amazing thing, I think, about a lot of social connections is that, you know, there might be like powerful forces at work, right? Racism, discrimination, a social media and media that monetizes fear and outrage. But yet, in these small corners of social life, we can actually fight back just a little bit. And sometimes a lot. All right. yeah, and, I, and so there's no greater place, I think, where all of us as a society need to try to see each other better than in the realm of politics. So I'm, I'm not looking to get into a political yeah. discussion so much <laughs> as I am trying to understand the nature oh, of yeah. why we come to our beliefs. So do, do our political beliefs, do we choose our political beliefs or do our political beliefs choose us? Our political beliefs choose us. I mean, one of the big predictors of political beliefs is just the area you grew up or what your parents' political orientation is. So they are almost like little 
viruses that you catch, kind of sort of cognitive viruses that sort of infect us for better or worse. The virus is perhaps an unfair term, but we, we inherit the beliefs, the opinions, the values of the groups to which we belong for better and for worse. And uh, in that sense, our beliefs choose us. They choose us. And we may, over time, escape that influence, elaborate on that influence. So we really appreciate the, the kind of understandings underlying the positions of our group. But our attitudes, by and large, are not bottom up, but top down. Okay, so now, does our need for belongingness discourage us to find more nuanced or moderate political positions? I think so. I, I, I think so. I, I would say, I would say in American politics, that is true. We want to signal to our groups that we are good Democrats or Republicans, which leads to a kind of one-upmanship that leads to more extreme beliefs. And that desire to feel like we are good people, like this is a sort of fundamental human being, we, human motive. We, we want to be individuals of integrity. And being individuals of integrity mean that we are adhering to the norms and values of our group. And so that can lead us both to good things and to bad things. And in the realm of politics, in the realm of politics, it can lead to, it can, it can fuel extremism. One study that I did years ago uh, demonstrated something like this in which we uh, presented Democrats and Republicans with two with the two welfare policies. One was really generous in its benefits. One was really, let's say, draconian in its benefits. We call yeah. that austere on the austere. right. Austere. God, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. These words are important too. It's George Orwell. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's good. Right. Austere. Perfect. Austere or generous. And uh, as you would expect, liberals like the, the generous policy and, and conservatives prefer the austere policy. But then for a separate group of participants, we said, oh, uh, Republican, Republican lawmakers support the generous policy and Democrat lawmakers support the austere policy. And it allowed us to answer the question, what matters more, party or policy? And the answer is party. And so the people actually, the conservatives tended to agree with the ones that were party endorsed, even though they go against the nature of the party's orientation. Absolutely. So it's not right. ideology or the facts of the policy that really matter here. It is the position of your party. It is party over policy. Now, it's not always party totally over policy. Subsequent replications of the research do, though, show that party is a really powerful part. The position of your party is is a very powerful driver of your own political beliefs in areas as diverse as COVID policy, environmental policy. I think they even did it in in uh, European country with uh, attitudes towards, you know, the approach, you know, uh, uh, country's national symbols and flags. So it, it's been shown time and again that we rely on, on the position of our party, which, which makes some sense. Of course, of course, it makes sense to kind of the people you trust, right? You kind of, you know, Democrat lawmakers like this. So maybe there's something going on here that I don't know. And so I'm going to use their judgments. Uh, the problem is that, well, if Democrats and Republicans can't even agree on on the very policy that their own side would, would present if it had the choice, what could they ever agree on? 
Well, right. And by and for the record, I'm not I, I, I'm one of those wishy washy fiscal conservative social liberals that mm-hmm. drive everybody mad. So and, and I have no group to, to to adhere to. I have no signs in my yard today. I'm the only person yeah. in the neighborhood. So how did and were you always like that? How did you get to be that way? Because you know, I think, think I grew up. Right. In the eighties, I think I was like I identified with Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. Remember, yeah. Michael J. Fox. That's right. Yeah, and I, I was I was a even though I'm from Georgia, I was a big Reagan kid because I liked the Amer the American positivity and optimism and all that. I didn't understand a lot of policies at the time, and I think in retrospect, I'd have issue with a lot of those. At the same time, you can see why, you know, as as great a man as Jimmy Carter is and was why he his 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 sort of soft long-term well thought out plans didn't didn't win people over you know i mean like so i don't i i guess i came i adopted my father's politics and then as an adult you know i've moved around i've lived in new york san francisco and la for the past 18 years and when i moved back to atlanta 11 years ago i was really reminded of a kind of conservatism conservatism that i'd forgotten about for two decades or maybe was never even aware of. And so I'm definitely to the left of center, at least in our neighborhood and among our uh, group set of friends. But, you know, I'm certainly not, you know, as, as uh, I, w- I wouldn't call myself, I, I'm, I'm an independent. I am neither yeah. Democrat nor Republican. Do you think that moving from place to place was, was helpful in that? So moving back to Atlanta, moving to California, like kind of just having different points of view that you were, you were kind of experiencing? It's not even points of view. It's sort of assumptions, man. I mean, like, it's like, you know, in L.A., you are assumed to have certain political positions, you know, based on what kind of work you do and what neighborhood you live in. Now, in Orange County, it might be different than in Santa Monica, but like people assume that you're a Democrat in in, Cal- in San Francisco and L.A. And Atlanta, if you're white and male and middle aged, they assume you're Republican until proven otherwise, or unless you got, you know, some other external signs showing that you might not lean the same way that they do. Mm. And you kind of reacted against the assumptions. You saw the assumptions and you felt like, yeah, this is not, I am not cool with this. I wasn't even aware of the assumptions mm. until I moved back here. Interesting. You know, and I grew up here and I, I mean, and I really love it here. It's just, I had for, I, the norm, I had, I had not, I had not considered the political norms of what I was bringing with me back to Atlanta. Yeah. And and I've, I've definitely, I've, it's definitely moved me a little right. Although I still am, uh, I'm firmly not committed to either camp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very frustrating. It's a very frustrating place to be right now. It's a very, yeah, I, I think so. I think you don't, it's almost like you don't have a, have your own political tribe. Well, in the, 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 the slices of what, what it means to be in a political tribe right now are getting, you know, yeah. more and more extreme. And so it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's really, I'm very interested in when people change. So how do, that's why I'm asking, like, how does that happen? That people become more complex or more multifaceted in in their views? And, and one answer seems to be that they experience different groups, different groups of people, different alliances that kind of give them a more nuanced understanding of things. Uh, in, in a, you know, really classic study where, you know, done over decades, they found, they, they were looking at these, um, Conservative students, they were this is, uh, conservative students, all women in this case, going to a, uh, they were all from very conservative families. This is back in, I think, the 1930s, all from very conservative families. And they, these uh, women then went to a very liberal college 
named Bennington College at the, at the time as a sure. sort of liberal hotbed. And one of the things they found is that, you know, you would think, right, you would think, oh, no, it's all economics. It's all demographics that determine your political views. No, actually, those women changed over the course of their four years at Bennington. They became more liberal. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. It's just interesting that that experience help them kind of getting a new group, help them to break free of the old group. And we see in a lot of these studies that the group, the group is both the the biggest barrier to change, like an allegiance to a previous group, but also the biggest catalyst to change. If you can kind of go outside your comfort zone and experience different people and different points of view. So that was, so that's one thing, like when people change, it's not just about, it's not just about sort of imbibing facts. It's about connecting with people who are different and from different points, coming from different points of view and really hearing and seeing them. Uh, the second thing I think, you know, that we, we probably really both agree on here is just the, the, the dearth of our, the dearth of good conversations is, is getting increasingly hard because of our extremism, just to have good conversations about complex social issues, liberals and conservatives. You can't do it. You just can't. And very I hard. Very hard, and, and it's all all these conversations are they're, they're entirely binary. And, but by nature, the the issues are not they're they're highly highly nuanced, and the and the answer isn't zero or one. It's somewhere. It's you know it's and I I don't I don't want to throw Thomas Sowell at you, but I'll do it. <laughs> you know, it's there's no solutions. There's only compromises, right? And so in all these in all these issues, it's 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 somewhere in the middle. We got to deal with grays, and nobody wants to deal with gray because no party you know, drives its affiliation based on nuance. They drive it based on platitudes and uncertainties, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, the best policies often come out of considerations of both conservative and liberal points of view. You need kind of balance, not, not for all, but for some, not for all issues, but for some, uh, that, that balance of pers perspective. I, I mean, it's led to a lot of the social psychological practices and interventions that, that we study the conservative critique, for example, of intervention that, you know, it, it creates dependency and rewards non-coping and stigmatizes beneficiaries. Like those conservative critiques are incorporated into a lot of the research on so-called wise interventions to bring about positive social change. So they, the conservative critique in this research is taken very seriously, but that doesn't, that doesn't discourage the researchers from intervening, it just encourages them to intervene in a wiser, smarter way. Um, but sort of circling back, I, I, in, in spite, I think, of, of all the division, there is like, there, there are some uh, uh, hopeful examples of conversations and, and practices and organizations that actually do foster good, constructive conversations across the political fault line. Now, this is the only time I've been a middle-aged man, right? Which is in my life, right? So, which is I mean, this is the first time I've been responsible for a younger generation. It's the first time I've had 55 decades worth of experience to think back on. And so I don't want to, you know, indulge myself in thinking that things were better back in 1945, right after the war. But it does seem that back then people identified as Americans before they identified as a party member. Yeah. Knowing what you know about belongingness and the way that you can inspire those things, what do you think we can do to help people identify as Americans before they identify uh, by their party affiliation? It's such a great question. It's such a great question. I, I think creating opportunities for people to connect across party lines is just absolutely essential. 
I remember reading an editorial by uh, a senator, this is many years back, maybe 15, 20 years, and it really stuck with me. He, he was writing about how Republicans and Democrats in, in, in the Senate don't go out to lunch anymore. These are always, the, the kind of schedule is so tight and the fundraising takes up so much of their time that, and the extremism and division to contribute that they just don't do these social things together that they used to. And, and he thought that that's important. When you create those relationships, then you create a sense of sort of common identity. You know, you're liberal, I'm, 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 I'm conservative, and yet we can break bread together. And we have an allegiance to values that transcend both of our, our party alliances. And I think those sorts of moments where we're connecting, like they, they seem unimportant. They seem unimportant, yet they are maybe much more powerful than we think. And there, there is, I mean, you know, one of the things that goes hand in hand with the division and political polarization and vilification that we see is segregation. Right now, Democrats and Republicans are more geographically segregate, segregated than I think they've been, you know, probably since the 1800s, as, as far as I know. On average, if I could recall, 20 million voters for their day-to-day lives, only one in 10 of their encounters are with someone from the other political side. So we're just kind of segregated. And so we don't have those opportunities to break bread together. Uh, so I think that's, that, that's one answer. For me, here's, here's one really inspiring example. This is uh, work by David Brookman and Josh Collett that shows that, yeah, you can still, in spite of the division, create connections and, 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 and generate intergroup understanding, generate understanding between liberals and conservatives in in a conversation. And what they do is they go door to door. These are canvassers talking to conservative voters. So this is in one of the most conservative districts in Florida, Miami-Dade, as I recall. And the canvassers have a 10-minute conversation with the voters about transgender rights. And what they find is that months later, as a result of these conversations, the conservative voters become more supportive of transgender rights and more willing to take a stand against hate prop- propaganda against transgender people. What do they do in those 10 minute conversations? Somehow they kind of create this, um, you know, like, like this old senator's uh, story, these kind of really kind of opportunities to converse in, a, in an environment away from our party allegiances. So it's just two people talking. The canvassers don't bombard the, the voter with information and facts. It's, it's not like an argument. They kind of don't do that. Instead, they just raise the issue and they, and they talk about it. Uh, and they do a, f- a few other things, but that's kind of key. There's no reactance. I'm just kind of sharing information. We're having a legitimate conversation. Conversation meaning just sort of to turn the issue over together. And that kind of permits people to draw their own conclusions about the issue. And they find that these 10-minute conversations, which have a few other issues, uh, one, a few other ingredients, one key one being the exchange of stories. Like, let me tell you a story about a transgender person who was really hurt by being excluded. Why don't you tell me a story about a time in your life when you felt excluded because of something about you that you couldn't change? And through this kind of sharing of stories that the canvasser and the voter connect and, and change is catalyzed. They're trying to convert them, Jeff. That's what they're doing. 
<laughs> okay, that was a joke. That was a joke. Sorry. Hey, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for this great conversation, by the way. This has been uh, uh, very satisfying and interesting to me and hopefully to our listeners. The name of the book is Belonging, The Science of Creating Connections and Bridging Divides by my guest, Jeff Cohen. Jeff, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? They can go to my website, jeffreylcohen.com. Spelling my name, uh, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-L-C-O-H-E-N.com. Jeff, thanks for your time and for your work. Best of luck. Thank you so much, Paul. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.